Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. The Word of God is, for this morning, is found in Matthew chapter 8. And you say, well, David, we were, we were beyond that last week. Why are we going back? We're going back because I want to. <laughs> We're going back for the hair of the dog that bit us. I preached on this when I stopped preaching the last Sunday in June. I preached on this passage, but I actually accumulated three or four passages or three three or four what you call pericopes, which is a a story, a section of of the Gospels. I put them together, and now I want to just focus on one because all summer I've been thinking about it, and I trust that God will speak to us through these verses. It's Matthew 8, 23 through 27. This is the word of God. When he got into the boat, Jesus has just left a crowd, he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep, and they came and woke him, saying, Save, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'll speak to us through your word this morning, that you'll guide my lips, that you'll allow the truth here to come to us not just in words, but in power, in the spirit, and with conviction. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we return to these verses that we looked at several months ago because they've weighed on me. We return to them because they are vital for our day. We return to them because the situation we face, and we'll come to this at the conclusion of my sermon, is similar to the the situation the disciples faced, perhaps even darker. We return to this because there is a truth here that is powerful and denied, regularly denied, ignored about what we need the faith that God requires of us. What we have in these verses is the definition of faith, and it's given to us negatively. The situation is disciples and Jesus in a boat. Remember, four of these disciples are professional fishermen. They make their living on the sea. They are not people, they're not young, they're not novices, initiates into the art of sailing, of being in a boat upon the waters, but they've done it all their lives. Their father did it before them in some of the instances. We know of four of them who were fishermen, that their father preceded them in the task. So they've grown up on the sea, they've lived on the sea, they know the sea, and yet they're scared to death, which means it must have been a terrifying storm. You know, a force 10 gale, whatever. It's something really, really starkly bad. And, and in the midst of this, fearing for their lives, we have the the encounter between Jesus and the disciples that we find in these verses. Now, what we have in these verses is something vital. Jesus criticizes these disciples for their lack of faith. It is what you might call an apophatic teaching about faith. Apophatic is a, is a term that means to define something negatively by saying what the thing is not. In mystic forms of Christianity, 
where mysticism is found, especially in orthodoxy, you find an, an awful lot of what's called apophatic theology. Usually this term, though, it can be used outside of the the theology, is, is spoken of theologically, apophatic theology, which means that, that you can't know God. He is the vast unknowable. What you can only say about him is what he's not. You can define him in the absence of things. You can't, you can't describe light. What you can say is what it's like when darkness prevails. And this is the, uh, the idea of, of apophatic theology. Very common in mysticism, common in orthodoxy. We are not believers in apophatic theology. We believe that light can be described, that light came to earth, that we are to live as light. And all these things are things that are definable and explainable. And yet in the evangelical world, we have, in the world that you and I grew up in, many of us, in the world that we live in, all of us, the world that's defined by the religion of the, the big-time Christians of our era, apophatic theology is, um, is regarded as nothing. We live in a day that only defines positively, and that's as wrong as defining negatively. Only defining negatively is wrong. Only defining positively is wrong. And yet in our day, we don't want to say what Christianity is not. We don't want to say what God is not. We don't want to talk about these negative things. We only want to talk about God is, you are, we all will be. And we leave aside the no, the not, the, the prohibitions, the commandments, the the things that define negatively. And it's terrible because all we've, when you can only say good things and positive things, eventually you become like a shrill little peacock puffing out its feathers and here I am, here I am, never ever saying anything negative, just fluffing it out so that the world can see how nice we are, you know? And it's no way at all to live as a Christian. It's no way to define the Christian faith. It's wrong. And it is the culture, the religious culture in which we live. God is love. God is love. It doesn't ever say God is a fire. God hates sin. God, you know, these things, oh, no, 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 no. That will keep people away. Well, what we have here is apophatic theology. Because Jesus is negatively defining Matthew through the Holy Spirit, recounting the story of Jesus, negatively defining faith, what faith is not. What we see here are a number of things that go on that we would be likely, we would tend to say are faith. This is faith. And yet the Holy Spirit, through the words of Jesus, Jesus himself says, no, that's not faith. Let me add at the outset that when he says, oh, you of little faith, he's not saying Oh, you have just enough faith to move a mountain. <laughs> you know, Jesus said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, a little faith, you can say to this mountain, be moved into the heart of the sea, and it will be so. So he's not saying, oh, you have little faith, but precious little faith. When Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mountain, or of a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, be moved into the heart of the sea. His disciples had just tried to cast a demon out of a boy. And Jesus had turned to the disciples and said exactly what he said here. Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, you men of little faith. If you had <coughs> faith the size, <coughs> excuse me, 
of a, mount, of a mustard seed, you'd be able to do this. And so what he's saying there is what he's saying here. You, you lack faith. You don't have faith. You don't get faith. This is an apophatic definition of faith. It's not a full definition. It approaches a full definition as you think about it and you hear what Jesus says. But it's very clearly a statement that faith does not consist of certain things. Or faith is not entirely defined by certain things. That something more is necessary in order to have faith. When we teach positively, the positive always requires some negative clarification. When you avoid the negative you eventually corrupt the positive. When you say God will make your life nice and good and God will, will give you forgiveness of your sins and you just say that and over and over again, eventually you're, you're forgetting the part of the Bible that says that without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Because that's a negative statement. You must fight sin. We live in a day that does this all the time. Imagine trying to live a life without saying anything negative. Imagine a, a guy comes to you and says, would you be my girlfriend? And you, you can't use any adversative language. <laughs> You're not allowed to say no. You're not allowed to say but, or however, or well, or. <laughs> so the guy says, I want you to be my girlfriend. And you've got to say, oh, I like you. But, but I can't say but. That's a negative statement. I can't say, well, because that's indicating, eh. You can't live that way, can you? Hopeless. This is the way we force God to live in our midst. No, you can't speak negatively. You can't say the negative. It is essential that we say what faith is not. Saying what it's not illuminates what it is. And there is no more important, pivotal, decisive question in our lives than what constitutes faith because scripture teaches, for it is by faith that you are saved. Now, not that faith saves us, but it's the mechanism. It's the conduit and the channel through which the blood, the glory, the salvation of Jesus flow into our lives. And so faith must be defined powerfully and carefully. By faith you are saved. Salvation rests on faith. And yet the Bible makes also very clear that there is such a thing as false faith. Paul writes to the Ephesians, the goal of his instruction of them is that they might have a sincere faith, which means that there can be an insincere faith. You want a sincere faith, not an insincere faith. Peter writes, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, making clear that there is a different kind of faith, a, a faith that's not of the same kind as his and theirs, a counterfeit faith. So Jesus attacks what appears to be faith in the disciples here. He wakes up at their cries, at their prodding, and he says, you men of little faith, why are you afraid? And so what we have to understand is that what takes place here is not in itself faith. Now, it can be part of faith. <laughs> it can be a feature of faith, but it's not the heart of faith. You may say that movement of people is essential to a car, and you'd be right. If the car is going to be a car, it has to be, move, it has to be capable of moving people, whether it ever does or not. 
It could be put on display and have the ability but never be used. It's still a car. But the movement of people is essential to a car in a sense, but, but you don't have a car because you're moving people. You could have a plane or a train. You could have a tractor, right? And if it's a car that gets you to salvation and not a plane, then you're in trouble. So what we have here are things that are consistent with faith, but not the heart of faith. It's like having a plane rather than a car. Faith is something different. Now they cry out to God, right? And you say, well, surely crying out to God is consistent with faith. Yes, of course it's consistent with faith. Like movement is consistent with a car. But it's not of the essence. Many, many, many people cry out to God. You may have a belief that God is capable of helping you. These men clearly believe that Jesus could help them, right? Otherwise, why would they leave their oars or the sails or the wires or the ropes of the ship and go down and wake Jesus, which is what we're told they do. But belief that Jesus can help, belief in the power of God is not faith. Many people believe that God can do things. We have a great example of that in the Old Testament. We've got them everywhere. But Balaam, who looked to God but was condemned at the end because he didn't have faith in God. But he knew God's power. He prophesied by God's power. You can believe that God has power. You can cry out to him day and night. You can think that that power could solve your need. And you could spend your days asking God to do things and not have faith. And so, I suspect in a few lives here, we may have punctured the conception of faith. That this may be what you think faith is. Perhaps it's even what you've been taught about faith. Perhaps this is the faith that is your faith. These words of Jesus are to you. Oh, you of little faith. You believe that God has power. Good. Demons do. You believe that, that God has power and you cry out to him for his power. Well, Saul cried out to God. More importantly, the Bible tells us that Esau cried out to God and there was found no room for repentance. He did not have faith. Believing that God has power, crying out to God for power, they, I'm speaking apophatically now, I'm defining negatively, they are not the essence of faith. Now, faith will do these things. They are not inconsistent with faith. But the fact that they're there in your life does not mean you are a Christian. It doesn't. It does not mean that you're going to heaven. It doesn't. It does not mean that you've tasted the salvation of Christ. It doesn't. There's something more. What is it that is lacking here? What is of the essence of faith? There are two things that help us to understand more about faith, more about what constitutes faith than what we see in the disciples. One of those things is evident in what Jesus says here. 
And I think it's enough to let us know. One is evident in what Mark records of what the disciples said to Jesus on this occasion that Matthew leaves out. And I don't think you need to know it to understand, but I think that together the two of them help us a great deal in understanding faith. Mark, I said it's not found here, so I'll begin with it, makes it clear, adds to our understanding of faith, adds something vital, a pillar, the foundation of faith. By adding that the disciples prefaced their request for help to the sleeping Jesus with an accusation, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They are looking at God and they're saying, do you not care? Something about that is vitally opposed to faith. Do you not care? Which obviously leads us to a conclusion which you'd say, well, that's facile, that's too simple. No, it's not. God is a rewarder of those who believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. The very essence of faith is that God cares. That God cares for us, cares for you. Not just that he is and that he can be approached, but that he cares. Do you not care? And you go, what? God not care? God created you and doesn't care about you. God is a father to you. And we know that the scriptures say that God is a father to all mankind, yet in a very particular way, he is the father of those who trust him through his son. God cares for his children. Do you not care? And, of course, Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? (laughs) Uh, This will be hard this will be a challenge for many of us to understand that, that, that faith is ultimately, this word of Jesus is, is fundamental. It's inconsistent with the kind of fear we see in the disciples here. Does this mean no Christian operating by faith is never afraid? No. But this kind of fear, this kind of fear that that causes these grown men to leave aside the sails and the tackle of the boat or the, the oars or whatever they, they would employ and, and goes to God and says, don't you care? Don't you care? That kind of fear is inconsistent with faith. Faith demands that we understand that God loves. Faith demands that we understand that God is with us now. And operates in that faith, on the basis of that power. Faith is afraid, yes. I have no doubt that little David facing Goliath with his his smooth stones and his sling was afraid. But he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid the way many of us have been afraid of COVID. Stopping doing what we should be doing. Because we're afraid. He wasn't afraid the way these disciples were turning aside from the job that they had. Going to the Lord Master is asleep and saying, wake up, wake up, like he doesn't know. Wake up, like he doesn't care. Wake up, like they're in danger and their lives are going to be lost unless they go screaming to God. It's so interesting, isn't it, that when you read about the stories of, in the scriptures of great acts of faith, 
like David with Goliath. I'd use that as one, but there are many others. You don't read about them going crying to God beforehand. Daniel, the lion's den, you know. Shadrach, Meshach, I, I could go on. And, and so many of the stories, they just do because they trust God. They don't go crying to God. They know what God wants and they do it and they trust. Faith assumes that God exists. Faith assumes that God loves his children and is favorably inclined to those who seek him. Faith understands that God is and that God loves. Faith looks to God as a father, a powerful, loving, benevolent, wonderful father. And what father ever delivers his children to destruction? You say that you look to God as a father. What father ever turns his children over to the devil? What father ruins the lives of his children? You say you have faith. You say that God is your father. What father does these kinds of mad things? But don't you by your fear very often accuse him of exactly that? Don't you by your crying out make it clear that you think he's capable of doing that? Look, I hope you're understanding something about faith here. The implications of your fear. The implications of your accusations voiced even in prayer. Don't you care, God? Faith is not a conception that exists in the head, not knowing something. It's not like knowing the U.S. Constitution, knowing that it resides in the National Archives, knowing what it says. Faith knows like I know my wife. Faith knows. It's deep. It's rich. It's a relationship. It's stronger than the intellect. It goes far past the intellect. I know Cheryl. Certain things that Cheryl does, I don't think they even hit the intellect, but I just rejoice in them because I know her. Certain things I say, man, that's the girl I married when I see them there because I know her. This is faith. Now, at this point, I have one further point and, and then a closing. I want to say something that I've wanted to say in sermons, but I've hesitated to say for much of my life. We are a Reformed church. We believe that God is sovereign. If you don't know the word sovereign, sovereign you hear in normal discourse among people in the world as sovereign wealth fund. Singapore has one. China has one. It's where they invest the wealth of the nation. Sovereign means to have the control of a nation, to have all power, all authority. Queen Elizabeth II is called the sovereign of her nation. She's the queen. She rules the nation. She owns the nation. She's over the nation. She can do what she wants. Now, she's not actually a sovereign because there's a constitutional monarchy that limits her powers. So she can't be entirely sovereign, yet she'd be called a sovereign if she were a queen. We can say that nations are sovereign. That means they're not under anything else. They do what they want. They've got large sovereign nations and small, but all of them stand equally in sovereignty. That the land they have and the people they have, they control. 
We say we believe that God is sovereign. That is fundamental to our character. That God is in control, which means that he calls you. You don't choose him, he chooses you. The Bible says it. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you to go and bear good fruit. We believe these things. We believe things that are in the Bible. That, for instance, when the Bible says that all things work together for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose, that that is a promise to us who are called by God. Again, God's sovereignty, he calls us. And that if you've had God's call come upon your life, then everything works together for good for you. Everything. All things, all things work together for good for those that love God and are called. And so I want to say to you that when I came to Toledo, I came to a church that was called an Arminian church, which said that God isn't sovereign, that we choose him, that we're in charge, that we can go bad ways, that God is really not in control of lives. And initially I thought, well, you know, it's a small thing. The more years I was the pastor in that church, the more I said, no, that's not a small thing. That's everything. And yet, over the years I was in the church, and I think I've told you this before, I came to realize that many of these people who officially denied in their theology, to the extent that they had a personal theology, officially denied that God chooses rather than that we choose God, who officially deny that God is sovereign in the ways that we affirm. Many of them, when it came to prayer and their lives with God, lived absolutely with a sovereign God. Am I making sense? They prayed to God as though he were sovereign. They respected him as a sovereign. They just denied in one sense intellectually what they believed in their hearts. And so I came to realize that some of these people were actually like me. They were reformed. They, they had imbibed the truths of the Reformation. And I, I think as central as any is that God is sovereign. That we don't choose God. That's not our works that force God to choose us. God chooses us and gives us the power to do works. But now I speak to a church which has formally condemned Arminianism and said, no, God is sovereign, God is in control in everything. And yet I speak to a people, and I include myself, my family, but I include you, who actually very often in our hearts and with our lives don't believe that God is sovereign. And what I wanted to say and what I say today is that you cannot deny the sovereignty of God in your fundamental being and go to heaven. If you think that all things do not work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, you're worshiping another God. And you're actually not worshiping him. You're damning by faint praise another God. This is not the way you praise God, nor is this the God that you claim to be worshiping. This is evil. God is good. And he promises that nothing can befall you that is inconsistent with that love, that goodness, that power, that sovereign choice of you that made you his in the first place. Nothing. So what should the disciples have done? What would have been faith? Would it have been faith to have cried out to God, perhaps? Would it have been faith to be slightly afraid? Yes. But faith, 
don't you think at the very least would have required them to, to continue manning their stations on the ship? To keep paddling, to keep their oars in the water, to live with their actions by what they profess with their mouth. That God is sovereign, that God can control it, that God loves them and is caring for them. Keep the oar in the water. Stop stopping. Stop fearing. Keep your oar in the water. I'm going to close. Faith is for trials. It's most needed and most valuable when we're in the boat and the winds are raging and we feel fear for our lives. Everything apparently lining up against us, everything seeming lost, and we persevere. We pick up the five smooth stones. We say to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, we're not going to bow to your image. We're not. So you can throw us in the fiery furnace, and you will. And our God, he has the power to deliver us. So we'll go into that fiery furnace. And if he delivers us, fine. And if not, fine. He's still God. Isn't that faith? Is this you? In the trials that you face, in the troubles, in your response to COVID, in your thinking about the situation that we are in in America today, we live in a time that requires faith, a time when faith is necessary. The Bible very clearly says that at the end, a man of lawlessness will be set loose upon the earth, and that lawless men will commit lawless deeds, children rebelling against their parents, authorities tottering and falling. So much anarchy and rebellion at the time of the end that the Bible tells us that if it were possible, even God's elect would be deceived into believing that God is not powerful and that Satan is. The time of the end is a time of lawlessness and rebellion, of evil appearing strong and holiness being eclipsed. With the church appearing at its nadir, at its lowest point, powerless, broken, under the, the boot of oppression. Scripture is not clear on how this time of lawlessness comes to an end. It doesn't tell us exactly how it will end. It does tell us that it will end, this time of lawlessness, forever. Ended forever upon the return of Christ. But Jesus asks, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? You know that. Will I find people who are steadily working and walking, who have their oars in the water? Will the people who trust in God, the men and women of faith, will they be scattered to the wind, plowed into the dirt? Will their lives be dissolved amidst the wreckage of the man of lawlessness, hatred? Do they only come back victorious upon the return of Jesus? Is the time of the end a story of the church running, the people of God fleeing, the forces of evil triumphing over and over and over again until finally Christ comes and stops it? Well, this is the thought of much of the church today, that we are pious losers, loving victims, submitting to persecution, filling up in our body the sufferings of Christ. We don't cry out as he did not cry out. And all this is true of our character, but are we losers?
And of course, many Christians have lived under the thumb, under the boot of oppression this way ever since the days of Christ and Paul, ever since the time of Nero, ever since then. In nations across the world today, Christians are being put to death. They were at the time of Nero, they were at the time of the the triumph of Muhammad, they were in the time of the Reformation, they were all over the place. The Roman Catholic Church sent missionaries to, to Japan shortly after the Reformation. Those missionaries were put to death in the people who profess faith put to death by the shoguns everywhere everywhere christians have been persecuted and it has looked like a lost cause so do we lose does the church end up a victim are we victims until the very end when christ returns and suddenly things turn nice is the church vanquished on earth only to return from heaven Is this the faith that God has delivered over to us through his son and the apostles? Let me be clear. The lawlessness that we see in America today is not America's alone. America is a great exporter of cultural ideas and we've exported lawlessness to the entire world. Making rebellion the need and desire and goal of all people everywhere. The communists in Russia wanted to make the rebellion perpetual and worldwide, they failed abjectly and miserably. But America, America has made rebellion the cool thing, the sweet thing, the well-to-do thing. And we are succeeding in exporting rebellion to the world where the Russians, the communists, failed. Communism lies on the ash heap of history. Prosperous American-style rebellion rules cultures from London to Rome and Rome to Manila and everywhere in between. The other day I was driving down the road, I saw an anonymous sedan, not even a cool old sedan, just an anonymous old sedan with an absolutely middle-aged, middle-class male driving it, white. On one side of his bumper, he had that palmetto tree sticker that you see in the cars of people who like to go to South Carolina, right? Palmetto tree, which signals to the world he likes to go, I think, to Hilton Head, you know? Here's a, I mean, this is a, a milk toast white guy, middle-aged, middle-class, driving down the road in Toledo in his middle-aged car. On the other side, he had a little sticker, and it said, aim to misbehave. You know, I may look like I'm middle-class, middle-aged, and white, but I'm a rebel. I'm a rebel. I'm not just an ordinary guy. I'm a rebel, a rebel. I'm cool, I'm a rebel. Aim to misbehave, aim to rebel. A milk toast guy like me with white hair, boring car, goes to Hilton Head, doesn't even have the money to own a house there, I don't think, and, but boy, I'm something, I'm a revolutionary. I aim to misbehave. This is the world we've made. Revolution, lawless, dark. But we are children of God. We don't know exactly how things will end. But we do know the character of our God. And that tells us something about how things will end. God loves his children. He stands by those he's chosen. His children win their battles. Always. If they fight, they win. If they put their oars in the water, they get there. And even when they appear to lose, they win. Remember that great statement 
by a historian who wrote a biography of Paul in the end of the 1800s, who in his foreword said, dedicated to those who would read and be interested in Paul, and he said, remembering. Remember, Paul died at the, at the sword of Nero. He wrote, remembering that the day was to come when men would name their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. Who won? Who won? At the end of a life of living for Christ, of being stoned and persecuted, God called him home by the sword of Nero, and men named their children Paul. Who won? Who wins this world? Who triumphs? The man of lawlessness or God? God, God the Son, through his bride, his church. Faith. Brothers and sisters, young men, young women, faith has been given to us precisely for such a day as this. Precisely so that we are not like everyone else, sitting becalmed, screaming for help, saying, where are you, God? But that we put our oars in the water that we fight, that we speak, that we live as men and women of God, prepared to conquer because we are the bride of Christ. This is faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus who has given his life for us and made our lives lives of richness because we belong to you through him. Thank you for calling us, Father, but I know there are some here who are not called or have not yet known what it is to be called. Father, by the Holy Spirit, impress upon them the reality that you love all human beings and that you want no man to go to his death, but all to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. We don't have to reconcile that with your authority, your sovereign choice. We know that you've told us to come to you. May we come, Father. May everyone here be assured that you are their Father and live in the faith that is the faith of the real man or woman of God. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our great and glorious Savior. Amen.